Thank you for listening to our New Life Christian Center podcast. Stay tuned after the sermon for more ways to connect with us. Amen. All right, so we're in Proverbs chapter 12. If you would like to turn there, we are working our way through the couplet division of the book of Proverbs. Again, the idea is that that uh, God put together, or the writer through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit put together two statements that either support itself or, or, or contrast each other or give greater explanation to something, and they can all uh, be, be stand alone as, an, as a single as a single truth or single sentence, each, each verse. But what we know about this is that these are largely considered to be Solomon's own writings. And so these were the things probably that he wrote down, and not to give too much detail here, but many of those guys didn't know that you should only have one wife. And so they had a few, and they had a few more kids. And so much of this writing was, was done to help train the, the children of the, of the king. And so some people have, have coined, some of the teachers, some of the writers of this, have, have coined the term training for reigning uh, for chapters 11, I think it's chapters 11, through about 22 or 23, where these one-liners of how to lead like a king uh, uh, come out. And, and so I like that, and I've picked that up, simply because we are kings and priests unto God today. And so that ability for us to understand how God thinks, how God encourages us to, to be in his kingdom, right? The domain of the king, very important stuff. So that's where we are. Proverbs chapter 20, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. Bless us, Lord God, by your word, revealed to us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So chapter 12, again, another bit of theological, uh, you know, Minutia, the uh, idea that chapter 12, verse 1 is chapter 12, verse 1 when he wrote this is just fictional. There, there weren't chapter divisions and there weren't verse divisions and largely there wasn't punctuation. And so we've separated, not we, not us, but, but somebody uh, after the third century or so when the Bible came together as one book, third century after Christ came together as one book, um, then they, in their wisdom, decided it needed to be uh, easier to break into pieces. And so thus the chapters and headings and that kind of stuff. In the Hebrew language, Hebrew has an associative character. What I mean by that is the character itself can represent a letter, it can represent a number, and it can represent a theme or a picture. And so they, they were very literal in how they approached these things. And keep in mind that literacy was not something that everybody had, not everybody could read. And so the Hebrew language as it developed, developed through a level of understanding. How do we do this? How do we get this across? So that's where, that's where this, this idea of the Hebrew language and how they did it came about. So remember, each time that you're reading a proverb, the intent of the author was to paint you a picture. The intent of the author was to paint you a picture. Most of you today are more entertained by sight or by visual than by reading. 
Most of you, if you read a novel or have to work hard at reading, it's difficult for you to get into what's happening there because you can't be immersed. Your sight, other than the letters on the page, your sight isn't engaged. It's why so many people today are actually addicted to their phone because it comes to them in the form of a video. It comes to them in the form of a picture. And, and so the writers here and, and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here did that very thing. They, they, they brought together these words through a language that offered a picture, through a statement that painted a picture, and through a collection that basically did a whole movie. Right? And so if you, if you can look at it that way, you can begin to see what God is trying to do here through this, and that's why this book in particular is not age-specific. You can give Proverbs to a kid that can barely read. If you can get a picture Bible, they'll get biblical principles from what Proverbs says. It's, it's the reason that I encourage people to read it on a regular basis, you know, on a, on a daily basis, because it just will continue to paint a picture in your mind. So notice it says, whoever loves instruction, in verse number 1, chapter 12, whoever loves instruction loves knowledge. I can't tell whether you love instruction. Okay? I can only tell when you don't like it. You can only tell when you don't like it. Don't don't say, well, oh, I love it all the time. Well, right, until God tells you something you don't like. Come on, how many of you have ever resisted what turned out to be, or even you knew, was the word of God in your life. And you resisted it. God spoke to you. Now, if you've ever had a habit, I have a habit of crisis or comfort eating. If I feel good, I eat. If I feel bad, I eat. If I'm under pressure, I like to eat. If I'm feeling good about everything, I like to eat. And when God says, I remember years ago when God began to, to I was actually heavier than I am now, um, and, and God began to deal with me, and what he did was paint a picture about my love of food and how my definition was different than his. I loved it to the point of lust, and when he tried to correct it, I didn't like it. So I didn't love instruction. Right? I couldn't hug the instruction, so to speak. It says, he who loves instruction loves knowledge. How many of you recognize that when you refuse instruction, you will by default refuse the knowledge that it's meant to build? Do you recognize that God gives you the first part and you put it in your life as a, and you build upon the foundation that is Jesus Christ? You get that little piece. And then all of a sudden, when you stand on that brick of building, you can see other things in your life. And God says, yeah, I've been meaning to talk to you about that. He wants to deal with it about things, but we have to love the instruction so we'll love the knowledge. Because the first step of that knowledge takes us to the second step. And I don't know whether you've ever done this, but I liked it better when God dealt with me with the glaring sin in my life than today when he picks on the itty-bitty things. I mean, I start a thought process. I did it last week. I start a thought process. And I, I sense in my spirit, I hear in my, in my conscience, I don't have any idea, and I hear that, don't go there. Right? Well, I'm not sure I love the knowledge. 
Because you know, some people just need education. And I might have been put on the earth to educate them. Or I might have taken it under myself. How many of you know that if you don't have a relationship with somebody, it's a little bit hard to educate them? Not everybody's going to be totally uh, uh, on board with your ideas. And how many of you know that your ideas comes from the brick of building that you're standing on? So when you love instruction and love knowledge, once you put that brick in place and building what is the foundation and the stuff that you build by gold, silver, and precious stones, that stuff that you build, as you build that part of understanding who Christ is, you're standing on your brick of knowledge. Right? Somebody recently came up to me, found out about our circumstance, came up to me and said these words of brilliance. Well, have you prayed? Okay, nope, it never entered my mind. I've been doing this for 40 years, and I've never spoken to God. I learned a long time ago that unless you want to look like a fool, talk to God first. Because when you don't, you'll look like a fool, and then you'll talk to God. Right? And he'll tell you, I didn't intend for you to be foolish. And so the simplistic answers that we have to everybody else's problems are basically because we're standing on the brick that God's building in our life. He doesn't build us all together in all the same way. There's huge levels of diversity in the body of Christ. There's huge levels of experiences. See, I I have some experiences that I hope some of you never go through. And I share, in most cases in a small church, I share all of you all's experience, whatever you tell me. And I watch you and I see the pain in your heart. I see the joy in your heart. I see the struggle of you trying to hear God's voice. I mean, I've been doing it for years. And so anyway, if you love instruction, it's not always always noticeable. But when you don't like it, it's really noticeable. Right? So what was he saying? He says, listen, son, who should be king next? If you don't display that you love knowledge, you will display that you don't like it. And everybody will notice. Amen. He who hates correction is stupid. Now, I got in trouble last week or the week before from one of my grand nieces who came up to me and offered me a spanking. <laughs> Want to know why? Yeah. I said stupid. And stupid is a bad word. So here's what the Bible might should say. Have you, you all remember the scripture? In Jesus, he says, Woe be unto him who says to his brother, Raka. Remember that? It's that in the King James. It means airhead. It means devoid of things between your ears. It means stupid. God dressed it up. But what he was saying was, don't be dumb as a rock. Right? I don't know if you are familiar with the, the pastor whose name just escaped me in San Antonio, um, and his son is now pastoring. I don't, it doesn't make any difference. A little short, heavy-set Hispanic guy. And anyway, he said, any jackass can kick down a barn. But it takes a man of wisdom to build one. You know, I, I think... He's got a church of 17,000 people. I'm going, how do, you, how do you get away with saying these things? Because he loves instruction. He loves instruction. If you're going to be a fool, it's going to be noticeable to everybody. You need to love instruction. 
Amen. Look at verse number three. A man is not established by wickedness. I have heard, especially in today's kind of economy and, and, and spiritual stuff in the world, that there are lots of people who are doing unreasonably evil things and making lots of money. And so we say, listen, a wicked man is not established, or a man is not established by wickedness. If God considers what someone is doing wicked, you need not worry about how God will deal with that. You don't have to worry about that. You say, well, and here's what your worry is. It's not happening fast enough to show the people that you're right. Come on, <laughs> stay with me. You, you want to you talk about the political divide in our country? It's all about the fight over who's right. I happen to believe that I am. And I happen to believe God will show himself faithful. But I'm prepared. A little bit <laughs> prepared to be wrong. I know some of you are going, really? You think about that? Well, yeah, because there's no clear majority. And as a human, what we want is majority rules. We want it to be, say it with me, fair. Not in the Bible. It is not fair when God gives grace to people who don't deserve it, and that's me. That's not fair in a human standpoint. He overlooks my sin every day. But he tells me, I will not be established, I will not have a foundation that can be supported by wickedness. As a pastor, I cannot rape and pillage the neighborhood of the church and have God bless that. I can't steal, I don't have the opportunity to, but by design I don't have the opportunity to steal money from the church. You know, in our church, whether you realize it or not, you know, two people count the money in-house that money is then sent to an accountant who, who counts it, <clears throat> puts it in a bank, and sends me a confirmation. We got $1,000, and the guys counted it, whoever did the counting that day. And by the way, two people do that, did the counting. And then they sent it off, and, and they counted it. And I don't know how many people they count, but, you know, count their money. And then it went in the bank, and I get a receipt that says X amount of money went in. Okay, then in our in our in our process, it takes two signatures on any given check for a check to work. Why? Because you cannot build a foundation with, with wickedness. And it's not that we don't trust the people we work with. We don't trust the environment we work in. Right. We work in a world that's touched by fallen sin. And so we're not going to establish something by wickedness. And as bad as I either do or one of the elders or somebody who's counting the money might need an extra $100 today, it just doesn't work for them to put it in their pocket. Because they will not be established by wickedness. If you've ever done something outside of God's will to make more money, my wife and I have, God didn't tell us to do that. We just thought we could go out and work harder, work faster, work longer make more money, and be in better shape. And by the time that little experiment was over, we weren't any better off than we were before. How many of you know when you're tired from working too much, you didn't depend on God's grace? 
And without God's grace, you won't make great decisions. So the extra money you, work, you made working yourself into the ground was spent on the supper that you went out for to reward yourself for working so hard. Yay us. <laughs> Come on. If you work harder, you're not going to cook supper. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. And wickedness, wickedness is anything that's outside of the, of the instruction that God gives to you. Let me tell you the difference. Sometimes we give instruction to God. We say to God, here's how we're going to do this, God, right? We ask him to bless our plans. And we come up with some of the craziest stuff that makes so much sense to us that we run with it. Sounds spiritual, but it's not God. And so in the outside realm of this, that's wickedness. I know a pastor, knew a pastor, dead now, who the pastor previous to him kind of got in trouble and couldn't ever live on what they made. And so he came in with this brilliant idea that he would just take 10% of everything that came in as his salary. Sound good? First of all, you need to know how much comes in before you guarantee that 10% is going to work for you. Right? When you, and he, man, he talked about it every week. I'm just going to take 10% of everything that comes in. That's, they're not going to set our salary. Well, the elders had agreed. You know, he had this big, long story. Guess what he did? He allowed then for every person in their mind to determine how much he should make. Because when they gave $100, they knew the pastor got 10. And for some reason, it didn't set with them well. Why? Because the 10% that comes into the church is designed by God's word for God. But we're giving them to the pastor. How many of you know that establishment of wickedness is not going to build the foundation of a church? It actually teaches people to give based on their own reasonable thought process. Now let me just point out something to you. I do not want you to give based on your reasonable thought process. I want you to give in the church that God's called you to, and I want it to hurt every time. I want you to be stretched every time. And I want you to do it with a smile on your face. You say, why would you teach that? I may not get very far this, this week in this, but can I teach this to you? Just with your little marker in there, just turn back to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Second Corinthians chapter 9. Notice in the sixth and following verses, but this I say to you, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Well, we love that. Because we think we get to determine the bountiful definition. Notice what it says next. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Here's the difficult part. We always judge the purpose of our heart with the grace that God gives us to live there. See, the purpose of our heart... Come on. Have you ever been in a fight with your, with your significant other? And you finally came up with the greatest excuse. I didn't intend for you to hear it that way. 
I didn't intend for that to be offensive. I didn't intend to hurt your feelings. Don't raise your hands. But have you ever used that excuse? See, the purpose of your heart, according to you, was to not hurt somebody's feelings. But what actually happened? It hurt their feelings and put a great division in between there. Why? Because you didn't understand the purpose of your heart. Almost all fighting in marriage is an argument about who gets to be right. I've always wanted a limousine with one of them rolly up things in between the driver, which is me and everybody else. And then I want a speaker system between the front and the back because I've ridden with people occasionally who I will say something and from the back row comes a hand. And I have loving people who will flick me in the ear because I said something they didn't like, slap me in the back of the head or whatever. I need a rolly up thing so they can't get to me so I can say what I want. Because they intended to flick my ear when I didn't intend to hurt their feelings or to say something too hard for them when I was teaching them what they absolutely needed to know while I was driving. Notice what it says in the seventh verse. It says, so let each one give us the purposes. You've got to be an expert at the purpose of your heart. And you need to be able to sort out, right? This goes back to loving knowledge. You have to be able to sort out the intention of manipulation, Let me go back to my pastor friend's story. If he needed more money, all he had to do was exhort the people to give more. Now, we can exhort you to give more every week, but it doesn't affect my paycheck. If we were to exhort you to give more, it could be that God gave us an instruction that said, you need to do thus and so. And so we're trying to raise in excess of X amount of dollars so that we can be obedient. So we might encourage you, but our heart is not a heart of manipulation. But if my paycheck is, 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 is attached to that, I can then encourage you to give more so that I can make more. You see the difference? See, there's a manipulation. The purpose of my heart is exposed. And so whenever you're doing things like that, you've got to pay attention to the purpose of your heart. Notice it says in verse number 7, each purpose in his heart, not grudgingly, meaning, oh, dear Lord, it's time to give again. There was a day in this church, and I'm always excited about what I get to deliver. I, I love God. I love the Word. I love preaching. And I love just watching your faces when the light bulb turns on. It's, it's, it's what I live on. And so I'll be just preaching along, you know, and then somebody will hold up their check. Because I forgot to take up the offering. So much so that the sound booth now has a laminated card. Show them the card, Byron. We haven't needed it for a while. (laughs) Anyway, we have a card. There we go. Got Got a little flip chart back there. Yeah. And they know... There it is. Offering. So there's a, there's a guy holding a little offering plate, you know, and he'll hold it up back there. And I'll go, oh, man, I was supposed to take up an offering. I've been doing this for 40 years. I've taken up an offering for 40 years every Sunday, sometimes more than one. And because my purpose in the church is not to raise money, my purpose is to teach God's word and have an audience of one. And Jesus is sitting on the edge of his seat and God is already clapping. I'm looking up there going, okay, let's do this, right? I don't care about the offering. 
See, you, you got to give accordingly, not grudgingly, or of necessity. Again, if you're giving to get, the motive of your heart means that that greed you have will reproduce that harvest that you want. And you'll get more greed. How much is enough? How much is too much? Do you all have a definition for how much is too much? Too much is when you're too much takes you away from God. When you're too much takes you away from God, it's too much. I know people with lots of money, and they're not moved. I have a, I have a friend who created the system of hauling glass on those trucks. The little tilty thing like this with the little carpet or whatever it is. He actually had a company in Atlanta that built those trucks and sold the first, you know, how do you do that? Patent idea and all that kind of stuff. He's like hugely wealthy. He has the greatest motorhome. And you know what he does with his investment income? He's about 70 now. He gets in his, you know, $1.2 million motorhome. Who needs a motorhome that costs a million dollars? That's none of your business. Who needs one? Because he gets in his and drives from where he lives down to Florida last year. I believe last year, two years ago, maybe. Well, before the pandemic. He, he drove down there, and he and several of his rich buddies went down there with like $350,000 to build a church. Let's not argue. Because his too much is not too much. Because the motive of his heart is different than you might think. See, we don't get to know that. We only get to know ours. Let's keep reading this because it's going to take me all day. For God loves a cheerful giver. Now, remember, if you love knowledge... If you love instruction, you'll love knowledge. I don't know how many of you are clamorously foolish in your giving. Or hilarious is another way, you know. I mean, you ever been in a group of people where somebody started laughing? And you didn't know what they were laughing at, but because it was contagious, all of a sudden 12 of you are laughing about, and 11 of you don't know what's going on? Right? That's hilarious. Going, woohoo! Because of our purposes, we don't do it cheerfully. And if, you, if we work this backwards, it'd be really... And God is able to make all grace abound towards you. That's the brick that you build with through loving instruction that leads to knowledge. He makes all grace abound to you. Now, I want to point something out to you. He didn't necessarily make all grace abound to you or make you knowledgeable of all grace when you got born again. He began to teach you throughout experiences and Bible truths and that kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, grace got bigger. All grace. It's the only place in the Bible where all grace works like this. You know, if you could buy happiness with money, wouldn't it, you know, if you say, well, you can't buy happiness with money. Wouldn't it then suggest that happiness comes by chosen poverty? I mean... You see how that doesn't make any sense? People say, well, God doesn't want to prosper you. Man, you are goofy. You're goofy. God wants to prosper you. He, he wants you to love instruction and love knowledge. See, and part of the knowledge I'm trying to give you today is that third verse back in Proverbs. Notice that it says in, in 12 and 3, it says, a man is not established by wickedness. You know, we looked at Proverbs last week, chapter 11, verse 24, that he withholds more than right and only leads to poverty. 
See, there's some instruction in here and some knowledge in here that leads to standing in the wisdom of God. Now, notice it says in verse number 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things. Again, that's kind of significant language. May have abundance for every good work. Let's work backwards. Every good work. If the work that you're doing is only good to you, doesn't fit the benevolence that God has. Well, I'm doing a good work. Okay, it's possible that you are. But let's keep working. Let's keep working backwards. It says, having all sufficiency in all things. Right? He says, you'll have an abundancy for every good work. Do you have the abundance? If you don't have the abundance, you should question the defining qualities of your work. Well, amen anyway. That'll get you in a week or two. You're doing the wrong kind of work. At the basis of God's benevolence is his love towards us. At the basis of our benevolence could be the love of money. Chugga, 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 chugga. It's like the little train that could. I can get over the hill. I can get over the hill. I can make it over the hill. It's a hill, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're developing potential energy by that chain just hitting us and taking us up the hill. And we get to the top of the hill. He's going to let us go with all sufficiency and all things for the good works. Notice if you keep working backwards, he says it's having all sufficiency in all things. Notice he doesn't suggest just sufficiency for what you need. It is the height of spiritual ignorance and selfishness. To only believe for yourself. See, that's instruction that leads to knowledge. Why don't you go ahead and stretch on out and believe for you and everybody within 10 seats of you in the church today? Well, I don't have what I need. There's a reason you don't have what you need. (laughs) Your good works is you. Oh, God, save me from my poverty. I need, I need, I need. You don't have all sufficiency in all things because your good works is not defined. Is this too hard? Because some of you are frowning at me. Your good works are not defined by God. They're defined by you. Amen. That he'll make all grace abound to you. Notice how... You get all grace abounding to you so that you can have all sufficiency in all things. You say, oh, I have all the grace. No, here's how we talk about that. I have the grace I need. If you look down in your collection of things from God, you should have this question. What am I supposed to do with this, God? Because you see, he'll get, if he can trust you as a, as, a, as a flow, as a pipeline, he'll put something in the pipeline. And you go, what am I supposed to do with this? That makes sense? How many of you are only believing for what you know what to do with? Oh, God, i got to make my car payment next week. You're, you're only believing for what you know what to do with. I, 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 I want to I dare you to get to the place where you hold something from God and you go, God, what am I supposed to do with this? See, that's when he'll give you instruction that leads to knowledge. 
You'll build on the foundation that is Jesus Christ. You'll stand on that brick of knowledge and you'll look out and you'll be able to see differently. I've always been tall for my age. When I was, you know, six years old, I was as tall as the girls. When I was 10 years old, I was taller than everybody. I've always been tall. And all the short people, not all of them, a great number of short people thinking it was funny would always ask me, how is the weather up there? You should take me shopping. Want to know why? I can look over the shelves in Walmart and read the signs three rows down. If you want to know where the peanut butter is when you're standing, because you know what they do in Walmart, right? They, they just get you used to where the peanut butter used to be, and they move it. And, and what does that do? That creates a pretty good attitude in you where you don't have all grace for all things. You don't even have grace for searching for peanut butter. Because, you see, your purpose is wrong. Because your purpose is wrong, you can't be a cheerful giver. Because you're not a cheerful giver, all grace doesn't abound to you. Amen. I'm not going to pound on that any longer. Sorry. Verse number tw- or chapter number 12 in Proverbs, it says in, the, in verse number 3, a man is not established by wickedness. Remember, you cannot build effectively or efficiently or eternally on a wicked foundation. You're going to have to look at everything that's going on in your life and process what your purpose is. My purpose for coming to church today was maybe different than what you thought it was. Well, it's his job, and you might have thought it this way. He has to go to church. We pay him to be there, and we pay him to do what he can do, and we expect him to do Right? (laughs) Amen. Notice it says, but the root of the righteous cannot be moved. Here's how you know that your purpose is wrong. It's because it keeps changing. When I was first in ministry, I used to come to church and I'd get so wound up because I always thought, because I, I grew up in this, and so when the pastor got done, he said, amen, the music started, you walk to the back of the church and you shake hands, and then I didn't know what pastors went through at the back of the church, shaking your hand. And they're saying, pastor, that was the best sermon I've ever heard, and then they would tell me what they heard, which was not what I taught. And I'm going, well, I wasn't teaching that. You're just making stuff up. And I would get all kinds of mad at the people in our church. Because my purpose was to teach them what I knew. And when they didn't spit it back to me, I would think, well, that didn't work. That's terrible. When God taught me that he was my audience, I just closed my eyes and look into heaven to see if he's smiling. If he's confused, you've made a mistake. Go back and fix it. See, my audience, when I learned my audience was one. Why? Because the, the, the root of righteousness cannot be moved. You don't have to agree with me. You honestly don't. In fact, I kind of pray that you don't. Because most people only grow by resistance. And resistance can sometimes bring pain and difficulty. How many of you are not too old to remember when somebody told you you should get in shape so you went to the gym and lifted weights? 
What happened after you lifted weights? Soreness, pain. And you thought, I ain't never doing this again. And then the pain went away, right? And you thought, I can run fast and jump higher because that's really important. And, and so what did we do? We went back to the gym. Now that we're a little bit older, we drive by the gym and consider it exercise. <laughs> right? Why? Because we know the pain that awaits us. But the, but, the, but the root of righteousness cannot be moved. What I'm trying to get you to see is not about exercise. It's about how God does things and how it's immovable and unchangeable. You can say, well, but maybe this is a new time. Listen, God doesn't make exceptions. The Bible says he's not a respecter of individuals. He does not make exceptions. I've had young Bible school students come up to me and they, they will say things like, well, I'm going to go here and do this. And I'm saying, well, that's not really biblical. Well, but God's told me. Now, I want to slap them and say, God didn't tell you anything outside the Bible. But they think that God's going to treat them based on they being the exclusion to his root that never moves. He Hamnon. You cannot build on wickedness. Amen. Look at verse number seven. The wicked are overthrown and are no more. You don't need any more explanation after this one. We know the end of wickedness and those who operate by it. It is no more. But the house of the righteous will stand. Notice that the benefit of the righteousness extends to those in your household. Pretty awesome. Look at verse number eight, uh, number 11. He who tills his land will be satisfied with bread. He who tills his land. Let me put it in maybe today's vernacular because back then they were, you know, we didn't have factories. They were subsistence people. So by and large, they bartered and traded for what they needed. If you, gra- if you raised grain, you might trade with the guy who raised cows. The guy would get grain, you would get a cow. Okay? I mean, that's just the way it was. And so what he's talking about is when you process through what God has called you to do, you will have bread. What does that do? When you process through what God's called you to do, it'll always provide for your needs. It will always provide for your needs. Stop arguing with God. What he called you to do will always provide for your needs. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. If you're not getting all your needs, you don't have all sufficiency in all things, you don't have all grace towards you, you are not a cheerful giver. I'm not making those stories up. That's what God said. But he who follows frivolity is devoid of understanding. Man, I love it when translators and people like that use $12 words. Frivolity. I don't know what exactly frivolity is. What's that? Fruitfulness. Fruit, well, but, you know, so you use a $12 word. So, you know, that's great. You explained it to you, but I still am not exactly clear what God's trying to say to me. Here's the point with the Bible. We get to this place and we think because God used the word that that's what he intended for us to get. But he wants you to dig for the treasure that's in the word. So frivolity, vain things, 
What's that? It's in the note. The word actually means things of emptiness. Oh, now. So you can put that, whatever God's doing. How many of you have ever dieted and depended on what you thought were empty calories? You've heard that, that language, right? They're just empty. Popcorn is empty calories. There's very little nutrition in those things. There's fiber. That's good. Yeah, so that'll, imp- there's fiber and that'll impact your bowels. That's good. Okay. Do I have to go down that road very far? Okay. The point is that when you process things, you have to process things based on the fullness that God intended them to have. Not the emptiness that you're... So he who, he who follows emptiness, things of no value, things void of value. There's no value in doing those things. And it says, is devoid or without understanding. One version says they're without heart. Let me show you something. When you follow empty things, it affects your heart. You will continue to follow empty things thinking that they will produce the fruit you want in your heart. Let's go. I'll use myself as an example because I don't want to accidentally hit one of you all. So, when I'm under stress, I can smell a donut shop from 20 miles. And if, I mean, if, if I'm in the third row over on the highway of, from, the, from the donut shop and I see the donut shop, you better hope you got your seatbelt on. Because I'm turning across three lanes of traffic on two wheels without a blinker. By the way, my new car vibrates my seat if I do that. I am so willing to ignore the instruction of my seat to get to the frivolity devoid of heart of the donut shop. And I go in there and they always, I go in there, I said, you know what, I'm going to get one donut. And it's one glazed donut, right? It's the, it's the worst donut in the place, right? Just, I mean, why did they have to cut a hole in it? It's the worst donut in the place. And so then I go in and they've got like big old cinnamon rolls and long johns that are filled. And this one place I went to, Mr. Cho's, I'm not stopping right now, Byron. <laughs> Mr. Cho's Donut Shop in Windsor, Colorado, they make a, they make a, a maple-covered long john that's filled with Bavarian cream, and they lay a stick of bacon across the top of it. Oh, man! So I eat that in reverence to God's provision. Right? Mom. And I'm thinking, I just had to go do this thing. I'm all by myself. So I, I eat one while I'm waiting... And I take one with me, so when I get home, I said, hey, I got a donut, we can share it. (laughs) Because I, oh man, I am a righteous man. Sharing all things, having things in common, right? Have you ever done something like that and realized 15 minutes later your heart was still empty? Because the reason you ate the donut was to fill the pain and the emptiness and the difficulty of your heart. And when you got all done, it was still there. It doesn't produce, does it? That's what this verse says. How many of you know every king needs to know that? 
See, when Solomon is teaching his children who might become king, he says, you need to know this. He who follows, you're devoid of heart. This will never fill your heart. Now you put in it whatever you want. You cannot drink your way to a full heart. You cannot sex your way to a full new heart. You can't porn your way to a new heart. You can't drug your way to a new heart. I can just keep going. You can't do it because it will not fill your heart. It will not fill your heart. You will still be devoid of understanding or devoid of heart. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for this day. We just bless you, Lord God, for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you for putting up with me. Thank you for listening. To subscribe to our podcast, search New Life Eckley in all of the major podcasting apps. Audio and video of our sermons are posted at newlifeeckley.com slash live, and you can watch Sermon Slices weekdays on social media. Search at New Life Eckley. Our main service is at 10 a.m. Mountain Time every Sunday. Thanks for listening.